Knud, can you round up the candidates? Candidates, we have a very good audience here tonight. They want to ask their questions. They're already lining up. So candidates, please take your seats. We're going, we're going till 9.30, right? Yeah. 9.30, okay. That gives them an hour. Is that okay with you? No, we'll go till 9.30 if that's okay with you. Rachel, is that all right with you? Till 9.30. Yeah. That gives the audience I mean, an hour. I am young. It's past my bedtime. <laughs> your, your, your mic has been checked. Thank you. He says that it's working fine, but you should speak close to it. Okay. Okay, everybody, we're about to start, and while you're taking your seats, I have to tell you that SAGPA meets every Thursday from 12 noon to 1.30 at Country Kitchen Catering on Mammograph Drive, which is the lower level of the keg. So this Thursday's topic is all about the Alberta oil industry, and the speaker is Ted Morton, a senior minister of a former Alberta government. So now we're going to our audience questions. And just to remind you, audience, you have one minute to pose your question. And you can direct it to one candidate or a maximum of two candidates, not to everybody. Wade, we just don't have time for that. Responses from candidates will be limited to two minutes if the question is directed to a single candidate or to one minute if it's directed to two candidates. Questioners will be limited to asking one question. Please ask one question, audience, um, until everyone wishing to speak has done so. And thereafter, if there's time, and we will run until 9.30, the candidates have agreed to run until 9.30. Um, if there is time, you can come back for a second question. Okay, madam, you have the floor, go ahead. Good evening. This question is for Rachel. A very long time ago, I was a kid on an egg farm. We survived on quotas. So my question to you, Rachel, is the World Trade Organization sees Canada's negotiations as rather hypocritical because of Canada's supply management. We control dairy and egg productions through those quotas. What are your views as a local candidate? Thank you. Thank you. Supply management is a system that we use within our local economy for chicken producers and dairy. It means that our farmers have to buy certain quotas and then produce those quotas. The reason for this is because it makes sure that Canadians get the food that they need and it makes sure that our farmers get the business that they require to keep a viable business going. Supply management is a matter of food security. It makes sure that our own borders are secure, that our people are fed, um, while 
keeping business local. What would happen if we were to open our business or our, sorry, our borders up and let go of supply management is the US alone actually produces enough chicken and enough dairy um, in excess that it would actually flood our markets and take entirely over. And so taking over our markets doesn't really seem like a very good option to us. And so our government does in fact support supply management because we wanna make sure that we stay, uh, or sorry, keep business here locally. We wanna make sure that our farmers are provided with the necessities that they need to be successful. So yes, our government does support supply management and it's because we support food security and we support a local economy. Yeah, you can raise your card, and then you yeah. have one minute. According to the rules, we can have a 30-second intervention. Yes, correct, yeah. correct. Okay. I feel kind of bad calling you out on this, but um, I do, actually, because I, I, I'm a civilized person, and I know it's hard to be a candidate because we're under the microscope and we're easy targets, right? However... I would challenge that the Canadian government doesn't support a supply management system because the um, leader of the NDP, Tom Mulcair, has written to the Prime Minister asking him to ensure that this latest negotiation, the TPP, that our supply management system is protected in its entirety and unfortunately our Prime Minister has refused so far to give that guarantee. Okay, seeing no further cards raised, let's go on to the next question, please. My name is Harold Proversoff, and I have a question for Rachel this evening. The various announcements for future conservative government programs, such as support for single and widowed seniors, the manufacturing strategy, the home renovation tax credit, and cutting small business taxes, have been labeled diversively as boutique campaign processes, promises. Do you support this type of small benefit plans? Rachel. Our government has put a number of different benefits in place for the citizens of Canada. So for our families, we've put in place the universal child care benefit, which provides families with children under the age of six with $160 a month, and with children between the ages of six and 17, $60 a month. This is a huge benefit to our Canadian families. Another benefit that we have is the TFSA, the tax-free savings account, which, interestingly enough, 11 million Canadians use. Primarily, it is used by those within the lower two income brackets in our tax system. Another system or another benefit that we offer is also income splitting, both for pension income among those that are retired, which is very helpful from what I'm hearing at the doors. And the other is income splitting for families where there's only a one, one person working, which again at the doors I'm hearing is being very helpful towards families. These things are far more than election promises. In fact, they've been put in place to benefit all Canadians for the long term. And so I absolutely support these going forward. The reason I support them is because I support Canadians, hardworking Canadians, you. 
and I support our economy and making sure that it's growing, which means you keep more money in your pocket so that, as my friend Mike Pine said, you spend more, which helps our economy grow and flourish. So yes, I absolutely stand by these commitments made by our government towards our citizens of Canada. Okay, Mike, 30 seconds. For God's sakes. Uh, the child care benefit that the Conservatives have is taxable. It'll raise 82,000 children above the poverty level. The uh, Liberal plan will raise 315,000 above the poverty level, and it's tax-free. My bigger concern, and I don't, probably don't have time, $38 billion in health care money expired with the health accord, and in 2017, another 30, 30 plus billion is going to disappear from the healthcare system. If we're talking about helping Canadians, we need healthcare, universal healthcare. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Next question, please. No, you've had your two minutes already. Oh, Sorry. I can't rebut him? You can't rebut him. All right. Uh, this question is for Rachel. Unfortunately, I lost my upper teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so if I sound strange, that's the reason. Anyway, I'll try. Uh, Rachel, Harper's government has for years supported the Israeli government despite being almost alone in this respect. Please elaborate how this policy is connected to the financial support Harper receives from some of the Canadian Jewish community. Thank you. Rachel? <laughs> well, thank you for the question although I'm not sure that it's worded in the best way possible. While it is true that our Prime Minister, Stephen Harper, and the Canadian government does stand with Israel, I don't know that it's true that it's because we're being bought off, which seems what that to be what you're insinuating. We stand with Israel because... We stand with Israel because Israel needs to be stood with and for. Unlike other parties, sometimes we just do things based on principle. It's what's right. Okay, thank you. Any intervention on that, anyone? I see none, so madam, you have the floor. I haven't seen any intervention card. I still don't see one. You have the floor. Uh, my question is for Mr. Mike Pine and also Ms. Rachel Harder. In 2012, the Auditor General report, 81% um, of policemen surveyed indicated that the long gun registry was rightfully abolished due to the fact that there was no clear evidence that it improved criminal gun activity in any capacity. 
At least two parties in front of me have stated that they would like to bring back this $2 billion policy. Do you believe that this policy is an attack on honest rural Canadians and why? Okay, Mike, go ahead. You've got one minute for that question. <clears throat> in a word, will we bring it back? No. It was a $2 billion boondoggle and it was probably one of the biggest mistakes our party ever made. And uh, we have said publicly and in our platform that we will not bring back the long gun registry. We do believe in uh, crime prevention. We do believe in trying to use technology to uh, help prevent gun violence. But uh, the long gun registry, no. Okay, thank you, Rachel. 60 seconds. I think everyone in this room is aware of the fact that it's our party that scrapped the wasteful long gun registry. Of course we're proud of that, and of course we're not bringing it back. So that's a pretty easy answer to that question. I think one of the things that should be noted, though, in addition to that, is the reason why we scrapped it. And the reason we scrapped it is because long guns are used primarily by farmers and those that target shoot, um, as well as, of course, hunters. And so should those individuals be treated as if they're criminals? Should they be forced to walk through additional red tape in order to shoot gophers on their land or in order to go hunting or in order to protect their livestock or in order to go down to the uh, river bottom and target practice? No, I don't believe that those individuals should be forced to jump through an, an intense amount of red tape. And so, yes, we have scrapped the long gun registry and we are proud that we did so. Okay, next question, please. My name is John Stanley. I'm a retired farmer and a small businessman. My question is to Rachel. Uh, the community, or the district, the, the, um, the riding of Lethbridge is made up of an awful lot of different people. Uh, retired people, uh, students, farmers, small business people. My question to you, Rachel, is what have you done to equip yourself to properly represent that broad group of people properly uh, in Ottawa? Thank you. Two minutes, Rachel. Thank you. For me, being a public servant has always been a part of my DNA. I've always been interested in my community, I've always been interested in making it better. Ever since I was a little girl, I was the kid at the playground that couldn't stand having someone left out. I had to go around and make sure everyone was included in the games that we were playing. The reason for that is because I was passionate about building community. I was passionate about people and making sure that their well-being was served. And so as I grew up, I began to consider what my options were, how I could contribute and make a difference to the world around me. Because my parents always told me that I would. My dad often said to me, Rachel, you've got a really loud voice and sometimes we wish that it came with a, a controller. <laughs> However, we know that you're gonna use your voice to change the world. And he's right. And so I went on and I went to school and I did a degree in political science, a degree in psychology and a degree in sociology did a degree in education. I taught for some time and then I got a job where I got the opportunity to travel across Canada from coast to coast 
and I was interviewing 18 to 34-year-olds looking at cultural, social, and spiritual trends, which exposed me to people from every single corner of our nation and their experiences. There is nothing that compares to something like that. In addition, I've spent I've done four international humanitarian aid missions where I've been exposed to the most astounding amounts of poverty that you could imagine, the most destitute situations. I've held people as they've died in my arms. Little compares to that. So what have I done to prepare myself? Here locally, I've been involved in many different things as a volunteer. Um, and I've, within this election, I've put my boots on and I've hit the ground running and I've knocked on every single door within this constituency with my team. In fact, we're halfway through our second time around. Why am I doing that? Because your voice matters to me and I wanna hear it. I'm prepared and I'm qualified to represent you in Ottawa. Okay. Next question, please. So that question was to directly to uh, Rachel, and it was about her, and she's answered that, and I think we'll move on to the next question. According to some sources, a universal pharmacare program could save between seven and $10 billion annually and cover all Can Canadians. I have a question about this for Rachel and for Cheryl. If elected, will you and your party establish a national pharmaceutical program? Okay, Rachel, one minute. Since 2006, our government has increased the healthcare transfers that takes place to provinces. That number has come up by 70%. You'll recall that the Liberal government, from which we inherited this nation, actually cut funding by 36 million just before we took over. So we've increased that by 70% to, uh, to provincial transfers. With that, our desire would be to see greater geriatric care, greater palliative care, and greater frontline care within the ER. Now, I recognize that our limitation as a federal government is this. We can't actually tell the province how to use the money. We just simply have the wish. We can communicate it, but again, we cannot stipulate. It is our utmost desire that our seniors are well cared for. However, we will not instate a pharmacare system at this point. Okay, and now on to Cheryl. One minute, Cheryl, please. Thank you. Uh, this is a good opportunity for us to have our differences because the NDP has promised a national pharmacare program. You have to look at health holistically. It's two-dimensional. So when Tommy Douglas, the founder of universal healthcare in this country, put that forward, there were two planks. One was universal healthcare and the other was prevention. We've done a good job of having universal healthcare, but we don't have prevention. A national pharmacare program doesn't cost money. It saves money. And the reason it saves money is very much a lived experience for many of the people that I'm talking to. So for instance, when I hear from people, I have diabetes and I don't test my sugar every day because as often as I should, because those strips cost more than a dollar each and I can't really afford that. 
there are serious health consequences from diabetes. It would be cheaper if there was a national pharmacare program where that was affordable for that person because you achieve economies of scale when you buy in bulk, such as countries like New Zealand and Italy and so on and so forth, that you can't get when you chop it up and try to do it province by province. So yes, pharmacare, it needs national leadership. Okay. Okay, Mike, 30 seconds. I, our party agrees with the NDP on the, the necessity of establishing a pharmacare program. What we're talking here with the Conservatives, and I do agree with Rachel when she said it's not in their plans. <laughs> in order to do that, you would have to meet with the 10 Premiers. This is a Prime Minister who has never met with the 10 Premiers. Thank you. Okay. We're moving on to the next question. You have the floor, sir. Thank you. This is a question for Rachel as well. Um, we are told by the opposition in Ottawa that $36 billion has been pulled out of the Canada Health Program. And as a senior, and also uh, I worked with Chinook Health for a number of years as a director, I find that two-thirds of our total spending is with seniors. I'm wondering just where is the commitment on the federal government's part? Is, first of all, is $36 billion a correct figure? And number two, where does the party stand on the total uh, health care program for Canada Health? Okay, thank you. Two minutes, Rachel. Yes. Our government is 100% behind seniors and wanting to make sure that they're provided with the care that they need. That requires a partnership with the provinces. It requires them to follow through on their end. I'll come back to that in a moment. Let me address the $36 billion. Because this is a common misconception that my opponents are using against me. So let's clarify. Again, we inherited a healthcare system, or sorry, we inherited a Canada uh, right after the Liberal government slashed healthcare funding. And so we brought that funding back up, and then what we did is we said, normally the increase for healthcare would be a 3% increase annually. But we see the damage that's been caused by the Liberal government, so we're actually gonna increase that to a 6% increase until 2017. So until 2017, we're going to provide a 6% annual increase to health care. Once 2017 hits, it's going to be at least at the normal level of a 3% increase. We are considering a 4 or 5% increase, but bare minimum 3. So is this a cut to health care? No. What we just saw was an incredible infusion into the healthcare where we doubled the percentage that was being, the, the percentage increase, I should say, that was being transferred. Um, and we're just gonna be returning to normal rates. This is not a cut. We remain committed to serving Canadians with universal healthcare. We will continue to transfer money to provinces in order to make sure that they can provide our seniors with the services that they require, with geriatric services, with palliative services, and with frontline care. 
Okay, Mike, you have the floor, 30 seconds. In 2004, the health accord was signed between the, the uh, Prime Minister and the various premiers. That put $38 billion into the healthcare system. It did not take it out. That expired in April of this past year. There was not even a single meeting between the Prime Minister and the premiers to renegotiate that. That's $38 million gone. It's not in the healthcare system anymore. <clears throat> Last year, they passed a new law to take even more money out, like I say, $30 billion plus over the next 10 years, to take effect in 2017. Okay, I'm going to have to ask you to wrap up. I just did. Thank you. Thank you. In my parlance, wrap up means just finish the sentence. So <laughs> you have the floor, madam. Thank you. This question is for Rachel. Uh, will the 2016 budget be balanced without raising taxes? Well, our government has already brought forward a balanced budget, and we didn't raise taxes for that. In fact, we cut taxes. And services. And we have now provided this country with a $5 billion surplus. Now, would we need to increase taxes in order to balance the budget for 2016? I think the obvious answer here is no. We've just balanced the budget with a $5 billion surplus in the midst of absolute uh, turmoil in the global economy. And so if we can do it this year, we can certainly do it next year, and we will not need to raise your taxes in order to make that happen. We are committed to supporting Canadians with with the provision that they don't pay huge amounts of taxes because we believe that they've worked hard for their money and that they should keep their money. We believe that they are the best stewards of their money, that the government should not take it from them and then give it back to them. We believe that they should be respected as the ones who earned that money, the keepers of that money, the investors of that money, the spenders of that money, because they earned it. Okay. No interventions on that question, so let's move on. Madam, you have the floor. Hi. We've heard a lot about uh, party policy and uh, past government. So what I'd like to actually hear is about some personal priorities. For instance, um, bringing forward uh, members' bills on your own. Um, and uh, our last MP had a few that we know of, one being prostitution. So I would just like to hear from Rachel Harder what her personal priorities are as far as if she was becoming a member of government. Thank you. Have we got sound? We've lost sound. We've oh. got sound back. Rachel, have you got sound? Give it a go. Um, okay. Sounds good. You have the floor for two minutes. 
Sure. Thank you for the question. My first priority in this constituency is to make sure that I hear from you. So again, right now I'm, I'm doing that by knocking a whole lot of doors in this constituency. Um, I'm also at a lot of public events all over the, the community, including the rural areas and the urban center, of course. And again, I'm taking the time to listen to you. I'm taking the time to be face to face with you. And so my priorities going forward will remain the same. They'll be for you, my constituents. So one of my priorities is I'll be holding regular round tables with different parts of our constituency so that I can hear their views on the different things that we're facing in this nation and specifically here locally. So then I can take those views and I can allow them to bear on the policies that we create in Ottawa. Again, the goal is to make sure that Lethbridge makes it to Ottawa. Your voice matters. I believe that responsible government does this. I believe that strong representation does this. I believe that this is the objective of public service. It's to listen to you, my constituents, to understand your concerns and to make sure that they are represented in the House of Commons. So I invite you to come and make those concerns known to me. I invite you post-election to come and work with me towards the private members' bills that would support this constituency and help us achieve the things that are best for Lethbridge riding. Okay. Thank you. Cass, you have the floor, 30 seconds. I'm, oh, hello. I'm going to belabor this point until you guys yell at me to stop saying it. <laughs> um, my, I agree with, with Ms. Harder that it is the MP's job to listen to constituents. I agree that it is an MP's job to bring those differing views to, forward to Ottawa to raise them with the government and to represent this riding. However, the fact is, is that Stephen Harper's voice trumps Ms. Harder's. And that's why we believe in not having a party whip, so that way we can represent our constituency before our political party. Thank you. Cheryl, go ahead, 30 seconds. Hi, sorry. If you're going to be a member of parliament, you have to have courage, and you have to stand up, and you have to be truthful with people. And sometimes you have to tell them what maybe you know they don't want to hear. And there was a question asked about private members' bills. And last night, we were at a closed-door forum where the public wasn't invited. It was a special interest group, and that's fine. People are, people are able to do that. And I would challenge, Ms. Harder, that you did say at that event that you were going to bring forward a private members' bill. And just to refresh your memory, it was um, around making abortion illegal. Remember? Oh. Last night? Okay, you've had your 30 seconds plus a few more. Anyone else want to intervene on that? No, because you've had your two minutes, okay? All right, I'll allow that. Go ahead, okay. 30 seconds. 
It's a direct question, Rachel. Did you put say that you would bring a private member's bill forward last night at the forum, and that was about an element of making abortion illegal? Is that true or false? True or false? I'm sorry. I think I have 30 seconds okay, for this sorry. question. Okay, sorry. 30 seconds to convolute. Perfect. Gee. Okay, Rachel, 30 seconds. Thank you. Yes, I was at a forum yesterday, and I was asked a question with regards to gender-selective abortion and whether or not I would do something about this practice. Now, being someone who cares deeply about gender equality in the nation of Canada, I said, yes, I would be happy to work with local members who are also interested in this issue to bring forward a private member's bill. Interestingly enough, there are also two other NDP MPs within the House of Commons who are presently working on motion 408 with Mark Wawara from BC with regards to this issue. So, am I against gender-selective abortion? Yes. Let the record stand that I believe that every single person in Canada is equal. Okay, we've, we've got still a long lineup of questioners, and I'm so sorry you have to stand there, but please, sir, you have the floor. Uh, my question is for Cheryl Mahedden. <coughs> Considering the Leap Manifesto has been signed by many of the NDP's most favoured supporters, would you tell us how quickly we can see changes to Canada's basic framework in order to turn us into the Leap Manifesto's socialist utopia under an NDP government? Two minutes, Cheryl. I agree, yeah. The LEAP Manifesto is certainly uh, utopia, for sure. And there are lots of uh, engaged, concerned community citizens like Stephen Lewis, who I'm sure many of you are familiar with, who've come on board and said, hey, let's look at this. And of course, the NDP is looking at that. And it makes sense that they would, because it's a different way of thinking. It's looking and saying, this isn't working, what can we do differently? This is a, an amazingly uh, utopic idea as you've described it, and there is no one that I spoke to when I was in Ottawa last week when we talked about this, who's gonna lock, stock, and barrel adopt this. But it, it, if you read it, it's, it's a beautiful thing. It's not practical, it's not possible. Okay. Seeing no intervention cards, we will move on. You have the floor, sir. Hi, my name's Ben, and I grew up on a farm here, and now I'm working at the Lethbridge Research Centre. My question is for Rachel. Uh, can you defend your party's actions with regards to federal scientific research, the cuts to research positions, the destruction of federally funded research uh, across the entire country and here in Lethbridge, uh, and the muzzling of scientific findings that don't agree with your party's agenda? Um, in the current world, how can we support a government that works to impede scientific research and progress? Thank you. <laughs> Two minutes, Rachel. Thank you. Let me start with this point. It's often overlooked. I think we'll find it interesting. Canada is presently ranked number one in the G7 
with regards to our support for scientific research and development in our colleges, our universities, and in our publicly funded research institutions. That's an internationally determined fact. So with regards to our research library closure here in Lethbridge, I think everyone in this room would agree that the purpose of science is to move forward. It's to create new technologies, it's to be innovative, creative. And so it would make sense then that our research library would do the same thing, that it would also move forward, it would also be innovative, it would also evolve. And so our library, uh, over the last 20 years, has been in the process of being turned into digital form and then stored, the, the main documents are stored in Ottawa where they can be retrieved at any point in time. Meanwhile, those digital forms then are available online and they're available to anyone from coast to coast to coast. Now, I have three friends who work at the Scientific Research Station and I called them immediately after I learned that the research station library was closing because I myself was concerned. And what they told me was, Rachel, one of them said, I've worked here for X number of years, it's many. I have not used that library in over 10, at least a decade. He went on to tell me that he actually would prefer these documents to be turned into digital form because it means that they're more accessible. He relies purely on digital forms for his research. So our government just served them well by making those documents accessible to every single scientist and every single research across this nation. That seems to make a whole lot of common sense to me. Okay, I'm seeing one intervention card. Cheryl, you have the floor. I don't think that's the whole story. Yes, I'm a researcher. I like digital sources. I'm in full support of advancing the technology and having access to information. That makes good sense to me. However, you cannot tell me that you have digitized a library after you've cut 4,000 research jobs and slashed the digitization budget by 50%. Mike, go ahead, 30 seconds. And the, other, the other question is, why do you need to digitize all this data when you've muzzled every scientist that can use it? Okay, I'm moving on. Next question, please. Thank you. My name is Lauren Patzer. I'd first like to congratulate all the candidates on their passion and their articulation of their policy platforms. Well done. <clears throat> I have a daughter who works for the Catholic School Board in Edmonton as a behavioral consultant. She tells me that most of the dysfunctional children she works with comes from homes where either the father or the mother is significantly absent. Further, that those children who do have a father and mother, preferably where one of them sacrifices their career and their income to stay at home with the children, have on average the best prospects for full functionality. 
what my daughter is describing is what I refer to as a traditional family. My question, first for Cheryl and then Rachel is, do you and your party wish to protect the traditional family and encourage its existence? And second, what are you doing specifically to allow parents to be significantly present in the lives of their children? Okay, thank you. You went over the mark, but uh, Cheryl, one minute for your answer, please. Thank you. I believe people should have choice. So if mom and dad both want to work, then I think that that's fine. I think it's an economic reality for a lot of people. One of the main reasons that parents are significantly absent, as you refer to, is because we've got a lot of people working two and three part-time jobs because there's no decent full-time job for them. So I think that's the first thing. We have to allow people who want to have a decent income, who are willing to work hard, to be able to do that. And so certainly my perspective and the position of the NDP is to grow the economy and to provide those good jobs for people. And if you follow politics at all, you know, all the parties are releasing various platforms throughout, throughout the election campaign. And we have introduced things like, you know, support to manufacturing and to technology, which is something that Lethbridge has a lot of um, um, innovation to be able to do with our Tech Connect building. Um, agribusiness, all of those things are things that we could do here locally. So uh, okay. if people want to stay here, that's Thank fine. Thank you. Rachel, one minute. I would say our government has a pretty good track record on supporting the family. Like Cheryl, I too believe in choice, as does my party. However, our definition of choice is maybe a little different. We believe in the choice being the parents with regards to whether or not they return to work and with whether or not their child goes into daycare. So that's why we've created the UCCB, the Universal Child Care Benefit. And so again, what we're doing is we're actually putting it in the hands of mom and dad. $160 for every child under the age of six $60 for every child between the age of 6 and 17. And families get that on a monthly basis so that they can make the decision what they do with that money, choice. So if they want to put their child in daycare, they can. And if that money needs to go to mom or dad because they've chosen to stay home, they can do that as well. The other thing we're doing is we've also in implemented income splitting for families, which again helps those that choose to have one parent stay home. Okay. I have an intervention card. Yes, Jeffrey. Christian Heritage Party believes families are the strength of our nation. We propose that the government pay $1,000 per month tax-free to a family if one parent will stay home and care for the children. This essentially replaces a second income earner's income. And while we recognize there are women, who, are career, who are, have a career and are well-paid, but we recognize that. But we want to offer those who are in a minimum wage job at Walmart or Safe, we want to offer them something so they don't have to slave at that job. It could be the father. Yes, it could be. It's whoever 
feels best equipped to do this. And we want to make it possible for them to choose this. That's the word, choose. They're not forced to do it. And single parents can have the same benefit. It would have the same benefit. Okay, thanks. Time's up. Let's move on to the next question, please. Thank you. My name is Ralph Arnold. I have a question that is unlike all the rest. As our government has moved to incarcerate, incarcerate more and more criminals for longer and longer periods of time, while working to remove or limit its own re revenue resources, my question for you is, is the following. This is to Rachel and to Cheryl, please. Is relying on solitary confinement as a control method, even though the United Nations deems it to be a form of torture, a real solution to overcrowding? If not, what do you propose to do? And if so, why? Thank you, Rachel, one minute. Again, I would say that our party has a pretty good track record to stand on with regards no. to safety. No. We want to make sure that our citizens are kept safe. We want to make sure that your security is kept in order. We want to make sure that criminals aren't on the streets because we want to make sure that our kids are kept safe, that they can walk down the street and they can play at the playground and we don't have to worry about them coming into contact with someone who might abuse them or mistreat them in some way, might kidnap them or take their life. We want to live <laughs> in safety. And so in order to respond to this then, our government has created 30 measures during its time in government that help protect Canadian citizens. We have introduced tough on crime legislation because we believe again in making sure that if you do the time, or sorry, if you, pay the, if you do the crime, you pay the time. Um, because we believe that those that, that cause harm in society should not be allowed to run freely. And I would venture to say that most of us would agree with that principle. Okay, thank you. Cheryl, one minute, please. This, th there's two things I wanna, wanna speak to. The first is that this tough on crime legislation is resulting in longer sentences. So people are going to jail for longer um, periods of time. It's not reducing the criminal um, rate as it was anticipated to do. But the reality is that most people in jail are repeat offenders. So it's counterproductive to do that. And let's ask ourselves, why do we send people to jail? They're going to get out of jail and they hopefully won't reoffend. So it should be about rehabilitation. Sending people to solitary confinement, which was part of your question. Solitary confinement is social isolation that I think is one of the most severe punishments that you can impose on people. And it has a severe psychological consequence. So if we know that most people in society are repeat offenders, and we put them in jail, and then we do that, which creates some psychological um, damage, those people are coming back into society. This is not what we are trying to achieve. Okay. Thank you. Next question, please. Um, my question is on the Syrian refugee crisis. And I guess that I would start by saying that I've got 
probably about 20 papers that I study um, from like through the day that talks about what's actually happening in uh, Europe and in the refugee camps. And one thing that is really troubling is that up to 85% are men. They're not families and the children. And so we've got a problem there with um, who is coming in as a Syrian refugee. At the same time, within the refugee camps, there are another group of um, Syrians who are Kurds and they are uh, Christians and they are um, Sikhs, anything that is not uh, Muslim. And unfortunately, in that culture, um, they believe that that means that they're infidels, they're worse, and they are prosecuted. So these group of people are actually, um, they're harmed. You'll have to ask your question, My please. My question is, is why would the Canadian, actually I heard that the Canadian number had thought of taking in the refugees that are persecuted by the refugees. Is there any truth to that? And to whom is the question directed? Oh, sorry, it was to Rachel. To Rachel? Yeah, because it was something I heard that... Okay, uh, fine, the question, Rachel, is to you. Two minutes. Sorry, I, I'm just taking a moment to understand the question. It's, it's just like, would, would Prime Minister Harper support that, and has he already? I, I had heard something that he had, but I haven't heard anything recently. Sure. Prime Minister Stephen Harper has been very clear from the, the get-go on this, that we would take in refugees at a number, or at a rate, I should say, that is reasonable to Canadians as a whole. And we s have said from the beginning that we would do proper security checks. And we have said that this is not the only measure that we must take. Now, when we take refugees in, of course it's our preference that we take the most vulnerable. Because you are right, there's a huge lineup of men that interestingly enough are in their mid-30s and who are, which is military age, who are quite fit and who are signing up to come into Canada. Personally, I'd like to make sure that women and children come first, which means we need to make sure that we're going through a proper vetting process, which again, I believe Prime Minister Stephen Harper has made sure we're doing. I believe that this serves Canada well, but I believe it's not the only measure that serves Canada well. The other thing that we need to be doing is we need to be on the ground in, in Syria. And the reason for that is because if we can take it on the ground there, we don't have to fight it on the ground here. Interventions, 30 seconds, Cheryl. We need to stop being afraid of these single Syrian men. Let's think about this. Let's lose it, use our heads. These are refugees. They are traveling by foot, most of them. Moms carrying multiple kids, the sick, the weak, the poor, they are not going to be able to make this journey. It makes sense that most of these people would be you know, middle-aged, healthier, younger, I guess, men. That makes sense, okay? So let's not, you know, right away accuse them of being, being something that they're not. Secondly, the problem is not that we should impose our colonial style of bombing on a country that didn't even ask for that. The problem is we need to find out 
who are these ISIS people, which we have a pretty good idea of, and we need to starve them out. Okay, we need to get rid to of whoever is funding them. We need to stop supporting the countries that are selling them weapons and so on and on. Thank you. Okay, next question, please. Uh, thank you. First, I'd like to comment that the process tonight, the second part, I wasn't really impressed with because I don't think Canadians as a whole appreciate people talking over each other. They want to hear what people have to say. <laughs> Secondly, I have a question for Rachel. Uh, once you get in, um, what is your desire to keep the process going? We know t right now, everybody, we're all out there knocking on doors, supporting whoever we support, but how do we continue that once the election's over? Okay, Rachel, two minutes. Thank you. To some extent, I've answered this, but I'll definitely go into a little bit more here. My first priority as a member of parliament will be to make sure that I hear your voice and to make sure that I represent you well in the House of Commons to make sure that your voice makes it to Ottawa. Now, here's the thing. We can make these promises. We can. And we know a lot of people do it. And it's phony. So I've been thinking about this. How will I make sure that I do this well? And I believe that it's best done systematically. So here's what I intend to do to make sure that I hear your voice and represent you. Number one. I'd like to create groups within our constituency that I meet with on a regular basis in order to hear their voice and understand their concerns. So I'd like to meet with seniors. I'd like their voice to be made known to me. I'd like to understand their concerns and I'd like to make sure that they make it to Ottawa. I'd like to meet with Aboriginals within our community and I'd like to understand their concerns and make sure that those concerns are stood for in Ottawa. I'd like to meet with immigrants that are coming into our local area who are setting up home here, and I'd like to understand their concerns and make sure they make it to Ottawa, and so on and so forth. Because I believe that your voice matters, which means I'm gonna need to be intentional in the way I go about representing you. Another thing that I'd like to do is I'd like to make sure that I'm, that I'm engaging in community gatherings with you, where you have the opportunity to have conversations with me one-on-one. -on -one. I'd like to make sure that I'm engaged in Lethbridge, both rural and urban. I'd like to make sure that I'm participating in the activities and the community endeavors that matter to you. Because my job as a local representative is exactly that, to represent local needs in Ottawa. Okay. I'm terribly sorry to the long line that I see before me, but we have extended until 9.30. I'm only going to be able to take three more questions. So I'm sorry to disappoint you, those that are further down the line. You have the floor, sir. This question was for Rachel, but I think she's answered it <laughs> three times already. Uh, the uh, Conservative government's I forgot the words now. Um, Is the question still to Rachel? Yeah, no, it's not. Okay. Anyway, the um, 
I'd like to direct it to Mike and to Cheryl, should their party get into power. Uh, what are your thoughts on the government's income splitting plan? Should you get into power? What's your thoughts on that? Thank you. Mike, one minute. I think we're in agreement with the, the Democrats. We don't agree with income splitting, uh, except for seniors. Okay, that's where it stands. Our position is also to get rid of income splitting, and here's why, okay? Income splitting is a form of tax avoidance. So you are reducing the amount of tax that you have to pay by splitting it up. So you make a choice not to have two people in your your household working or, you know, if we want to use the traditional family that was referred to earlier, mom and dad. And so that's fine. You can make that choice. But you can't expect 85% of other Canadians to pick up the tab for that. Okay. Thank you. Next question, please. Hi, I just want to start by saying, Rachel, you have very nice hair. <laughs> um, so, sorry, my question is to Rachel and to Cheryl. Um, since Thomas McClare um, has taken over as leader of the NDP, votes in the House of Commons has been 100% unanimous. How are we to believe that you will be Lethbridge's voice? And to Rachel, how are we to believe that you will be our voice in Ottawa when you have picked and chosen which speaking forums that you will attend? Um, does this mean you're going to pick and choose which issues are important to Lethbridge? Okay, Cheryl, you have the floor first. I am very fortunate. I have had a lot of privilege in my life where I have been able to be educated, I have had wonderful work experiences, and I have lived in great communities. So I bring to the table a lot of knowledge, skill, and ability. And I have a track record. I get stuff done. And fortunately for me, the NDP realizes this too. So last week when they released their budget framework, they asked me what I thought. They brought me to Ottawa, and I was so flattered that they would recognize that. And they said, you know, you have business sense, and you have feet on the ground. So we want to know, does this make sense? Is this practical? How is this going to work? And so, yes, I think we do vote in concert, but it's because we have discussion. And you probably all work with people that you don't necessarily agree with their decisions, but you might understand why you have to have that decision. So it's a process, it's collaborative, and that's how the NDP works. Okay. Thank you. Rachel, one minute. What's interesting to me is when we look at voting records, which are available, they're public, we can see that out of any of the parties in power, or in the House of Commons, sorry, the Conservatives 
they're the <laughs> they're by far the party that votes against or in disagreement to what so-called party line would be. That's on public record. That's showing. As a conservative member, I have the opportunity to vote according to what my constituents want. I have a free vote. If I disagree with where my party stands on something, I have the opportunity to take a stand against it, to vote in the direction that I want. Now, let me paint a picture for you elsewhere. When we put forward the long gun registry, the NDP leader, Tom Mulcair, asked his members to vote against it. One member of his party didn't listen and instead voted for the scrapping of the long gun registry. What happened to said member? Said member was immediately removed from caucus and lost his position as a representative for a local riding in Canada. Okay. I have one intervention, yes. This might be one time where actually, hopefully for many, that Ms. Harder I completely agree with because the person that she's referring to, his name is Bruce Heyer. And he voted against his party lines because of the party whip system. He was completely ostracized. He was forced to, or he made the decision to leave the party. And then he actually joined the party, uh, sorry, he joined the Green Party afterwards because we don't have a party whip. Surprise, party whip. Okay, thanks very much. Now we move on to the last question of this evening's forum. You have the floor, sir. At, uh, I'll give uh, Rachel a break, so we'll focus on uh, Cheryl. At your first forum, you said uh, something to the effect that um, orthopedic and eye surgeons, uh, you suggested that technicians could actually do the procedures that they do. There's a huge, huge difference between a surgeon yeah. and a technician. Mm -hmm. I would like you to clarify that. Sure. Okay, thank you. Sure. Two minutes, Cheryl. So I've had lots of discussions with uh, physicians about the healthcare system and how we're gonna deal with this aging population. So we have an aging population and you know, it makes sense that they're gonna require more healthcare. So one of the things he told me was he said, you know, we could do a few things. We could streamline the training. So right now, if you're an orthopedic surgeon and you're gonna do knee replacements or hip replacements, and that's gonna be 98% of your work, then it would make sense that maybe you don't need to spend as many years doing training in other things that you're not gonna do. So therefore, you're gonna be in the hospital sooner with better experience because it's gonna be specialized and you're, and you're able to do what you're gonna do most of the time, which is knee and hip. So that kind of made sense to me. The other thing he said is in other places, surgeries like um, cataract surgery, that is done by a technician supervised by an ophthalmologist. And in that way, we can put more people through, more people can get cataract surgery faster it's a procedure, if you think like um, maybe 20 years ago, the idea of laser eye surgery would have been unfathomable, and now there's one on every street corner. So it's not, I n did never say that we can just disregard the skill and expertise of uh, professional 
um, medical practitioners. Absolutely not. But what I'm saying is we're going to have a healthcare crisis and we need to start thinking differently about how we're going to deliver these services to people. And those were a couple of ideas that were put forward. They're just ideas at this point, but you know what? Makes kind of sense. I'd be willing to explore those. And if you have other good ideas, we need to explore those ideas. Okay, thank you very much. Seeing no intervention cards, we have to wrap up our evening and thank the candidates for their time and for their answers to your questions. Thank you, candidates. And thank you, audience. Thank you for coming along. And look forward to seeing you at SACPA on Thursday, Ted Morton on Alberta Oil.